Good morning to each of you. Please take your Bibles. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We have been away for a month or so, but today we return and continue our study in this precious portion of God's Word. Our principal text today is found in the 13th chapter. I'm going to begin, however, in the 12th chapter with the first two verses. These are pivotal verses. They are transitional verses as Paul moves from explaining doctrine in the first 11 chapters to applying doctrine in the remainder of the book. And so these verses stand at a, as I already said, pivotal point in, uh, in Paul's writing of this epistle. So I invite you to follow along as I read them yet again for us. We were here some months ago, the first two verses of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, in light of everything I've said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I am going to ask Arthur to bring a slide up behind me. You've seen this before. This is by way of review. Paul introduces that great statement in the verses I just read, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. He is referring to everything he has said in the first 11 chapters. Uh, we can think of God the Father, uh, how he has chosen for himself a people, uh, elected a people before the foundation of the world, a, a people whom he would save. That is a great, great mercy. Uh, we can think of God the Son, who came to redeem that same people, who took the form of a servant, was obedient even to the point of death, who lived a perfect life on behalf of that people, who died a substitutionary death on behalf of that people, who rose again and now lives forevermore to make intercession for all those whom the Father has given to him. That is a great, great mercy. And we can think of God the Spirit, whom the exalted Son has sent forth to unite his people to himself, thereby making us one, causing us to be born again to a living hope. Oh, by the mercies of God, says Paul. In other words, the mercies of God are the supreme motive for obedience. That's his point in chapter 12, verse 1. By the mercies of God, I appeal to you, and he appeals to us to obey. What does that obedience look like? In the first instance, in the first verse, it entails a consecrated body. We present ourselves, every aspect of our being, our lives, our existence, upon the altar as a living sacrifice. And it entails, secondly, a renewed mind. We are not conformed to the thinking of this world. 
But by the renewal of our minds, a work of the Holy Spirit, by the word, we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so there is our great response to the mercies of God. And so Paul establishes then these two pillars right there at the outset of chapter 12. Well, what does a consecrated body and a renewed mind look like? He explains all the way through into the 15th chapter. Next slide, Arthur. And there you have it. He talks about how the gospel transforms us in relation to ourselves. How the mercies of God impact us. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. We already looked at it. And we summed it up in that concise, succinct statement. Sober judgment. The mercies of God impact how we relate to our fellow believers right here in the context of Grace Community Church. And we summed it up in that expression, genuine love. The mercies of God, they impact us and they shape how we relate to our enemies. Chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. And we summed up what Paul has to say there, say there, writes there in that expression, active compassion. We've covered all of that. And we've now arrived at the 13th chapter, how we relate to our rulers. And I am going to affirm that our response to our rulers as the mercies of God shape us and transform us, our response is summed up in that expression, grateful subjection. We'll move on at some point to the realm of unbelievers, desires, and opinions, but now you know where we are in the flow of this epistle as a whole, and so turn with me to the 13th chapter as I read for us this first seven verses, and yes, Arthur, those slides are gone. We don't need them anymore. We turn to God's word. Please follow as I read in the first verse. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now I think we can just skip over those verses and move on to the eighth verse, don't you? Uh, I need to make a couple of introductory comments. Uh, the first is this. This is a crucial text. These are crucial verses. As Americans, I'm not an American yet, but I do a plan on becoming one one day, just share that with you. But as Americans, you cannot understand your own history divorced from this text. How the church, how Christians have interpreted, applied, 
handled this text has shaped the history of this nation. You see it in three pivotal events. You go back to the 18th century, you see it in the American Revolution. How does this text apply to what transpired at the time of the American Revolution? You see it in the 19th century with the issue of the Civil War. You see it in the 20th century with the whole issue of the Civil Rights Movement. Three pivotal events that have shaped the history and to a great extent determined what this country is today. You cannot, we cannot understand them apart from how the church has handled this text and applied it in each of those instances. So it is a crucial text. And it is, you don't need me to tell you this, a controversial text. The interpretation isn't the problem. It's, it's pretty straightforward what Paul is saying here. The interpretation, understanding his point, I dare say, isn't the problem. The problem arises with application. Because here's the issue. Paul doesn't address the issues we want him to address. I think there's good reason for that. I'll get there in a moment. He doesn't, each of us right now are itching for Paul to say something that he does not say. He does not go down the road we want to go down in our day. He doesn't even go there. Doesn't even enter into the realm. Uh, he has to say what he has to say. And we struggle, therefore, when it comes to application, and we struggle when it comes in particular to applying this text to our day, 21st century, in a constitutionally based country and society. So here's what I'm going to do. My chief end is to offend everybody in this room. Here's how I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to um, I'm gonna expound the text primarily, chiefly today. My concern is interpretation. Coupled with interpretation, yes, handling a big, huge question that arises from the verses, and then something of application so that we make sure we're getting Paul's main point. Next Sunday, I'm going to take it a step further, and I am going to suggest, I am going to encourage you, us, as to how this text should, ought to shape our thinking 2016 as we face an election and the future of this country. I'm going to go down that road, but it's going to be next week. This is more foundational today. Looking at exactly what Paul is saying, answering the big question that everybody wants answered that emerges from this text, and then making sure we really get what Paul is saying by way of application. So explanation, again, it's very straightforward. I'm going to suggest three headings to you. If we get these three headings, I think we've understood the text. Here's heading number one. The command. I know you're expecting something just remarkable there, but that's all I've got. The command. First verse. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The command. He's going to repeat it in slightly different words in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now remember... Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and why we began where we did. We are not to lift these verses out of the entire context of the epistle. Paul is reveling in the mercies of God. And his chief concern is to demonstrate how the mercies of God become determinative 
in the life of the believer and touch every aspect, every corner of our lives. And so we need to understand that and appreciate it, that these commands, he gave close to 40 commands in the 12th chapter. And now he's going to add a series of commands in the 13th chapter. He's going to add even more in chapter 14 and even more into chapter 15. His concern is about grace in action. You're a Christian. That's wonderful. Here's what it must look like. We are part of a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And so his chief concern is to show the gospel with legs, if you like, in our lives. And so command upon command upon command. And here's the command he opens this chapter with. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Second heading I want you to get is this. The reason for grateful subjection. He actually gives two chief reasons. Look at the word that follows the command in the middle of verse 13, for. In other words, I'm now going to give you a reason for the command I've just given. Look at the word that starts verse 3, for. Here's another reason. So he gives two reasons to buttress, to support the command. Every person that includes you and me is to be subject to the governing authorities, here's why. Here's reason number one. We can sum it up in the expression divine authority. Middle of verse one. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You need think no further than the statement from the Lord Jesus as he stood trial before Pilate. Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know I have the authority to take life or give life? And how does the Lord Jesus respond? Do you not know that you have, the only authority you have is given to you from above? There is only one authority. And Paul's point is that any earthly or human authority has actually been instituted by God, therefore has divine authority behind it. And so he builds in the second verse, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So we can sum it up. Reason number one as follows. We are to be subject to the governing authorities because it is right. That's it. That's reason number one. Reason number two. Note again the word with which Paul opens verse three, four. Reason number one was divine authority. Reason number two is human society. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I firmly believe the Apostle Paul has Genesis 9 in mind, and what we call the Noahic Covenant. And that great commandment that whoever sheds man's blood um, by man's hand, I will require his blood. And we have instituted law and order way back in Genesis 9, the necessity of human government to enact and to see through that law and order. We therefore have the divine institution of human government and its chief responsibility, which is what? It is to punish evil and it is to reward good. For that reason, we are to subject ourselves to the governing authorities because it is 
wise. It is in our best interest, societally speaking. And so divine authority, human society, the two chief reasons why we are to gratefully subject to the governing authorities. We must grasp this. Oh, we must. The rule of law and order. The rule of law and order through human government is a tremendous manifestation of God's common grace toward us. We must recognize it. We must embrace it. We must celebrate it. And we should be thankful for it. Just think for a moment. Think for a moment of what it must be like to live in certain neighborhoods. Thankfully, there aren't that many. But certain neighborhoods in certain cities dotted across this nation. Where basically it's the rule, law of the jungle that rules. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in those kind of conditions? Our neighbors to the south, certain regions of Mexico today, certain cities where gangs reign supreme, was it last week, the week before, that newly elected mayor, her name escapes me, a woman, she lasted one day in office. Friends, could you imagine what it would be like to live in the midst of such lawlessness? Think of vast regions of Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, where basically the biggest gun rules. And there is essentially no centralized, no recognized rule of law and order. I hope we get this. These are snapshots of what the world would be like without God's common grace. We dare not be so presumptuous in this nation living in Glen Rose, Texas. And we should thank the good Lord above every day for the stability and the security Whatever problems might still plague this country, fine. We must never lose sight of the stability and the security and the liberty we enjoy each and every day and embrace it for what it is, a gift of God's good, common grace to us. And we dare not be presumptuous, thankful for it, earnest to preserve it, and on our knees praying that it might continue by God's good grace above. Oh, we must understand it. Divine authority, human society, reasons why we must gratefully subject to the governing authorities. Paul doesn't stop there. He builds. Here's the third heading. The examples of grateful subjection. So you've got the command, verse 1. You've got the two reasons, verses, middle of verse 1 through verse 4. You've got the command reiterated in verse 5. And then you've got four examples of what this grateful subjection must look like in verses 6 and 7. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. Nearly choke on that word saying it. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Notice Four statements. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. 
So four ways in which, or four examples whereby we demonstrate our grateful subjection to the governing authorities. Number one, we pay taxes. Why? Because they do a job. We might not always like the job they do. Our opinion might be they don't merit the salary that they demand, but it is what it is. And Paul commands us to pay those taxes, those leaders, they merit their financial remuneration. Second example is this, we pay revenue. Seventh verse, what does he mean by revenue? He means customs. And so those expenditures that go to security, whether they be security forces, policing, or infrastructure, or the public good, we are to recognize that the government has expenses. The government does, in many ways, contribute to societal good, and we pay those customs willingly. And that is a manifestation of what it means to subject ourselves gratefully to the ruling authorities. Thirdly, we pay respect. That is our attitude toward their laws. And fourthly, we pay honor. That is our attitude toward their persons. We respect them. We might criticize at times. We might have to call it like it is at times. But we do so respectfully. We do so honorably. I find these examples, those four statements, extremely liberating. Here's what, I don't, here's what we must never lose sight of. Paul penning these words is not, does not have our situation in Glen Rose, Texas in view. He writes to people living under a totalitarian regime, a dictator, a brutal dictator in many ways. His society knows nothing of inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. His society knows nothing of religious freedom. Their godliness or ungodliness is not the determinative factor. I find that liberating. It simply means this. I don't have to agree with, comment on, or respond to every decision the government makes. I can freely pay my taxes, pay my revenue, pay my customs, render respect, re render honor without having to endorse everything. The many failures, says James Montgomery Boyce, the many failures of human government which are the failures of human beings themselves, must not blind us to the truth that government is nevertheless directly and divinely appointed. There you have it. There is a command, there are two reasons given, and there are four examples rendered. You know as well as I do what is the, so to speak, elephant in the room. What is the big question? Here it is. Are there instances when grateful subjection to the governing authorities might actually be sinful. Right? That's the issue. Are there occasions, are there instances when grateful subjection, yes, I see the reasons, divine authority, human society, I see that my fourfold response, paying taxes, revenue, respect, honor. But my dilemma is this, are there instances, are there occasions, I wish Paul spoke more clearly to this, but he doesn't. Are there instances when grateful subjection to the governing authorities might be sinful? I'm going to give you a threefold response, three principles, and let me hedge it as I begin. This is the fruit of my thinking over many years, uh, not sort of a knee-jerk reaction. This is, is my thinking in the context where I live. 
All right? I'm not speaking on behalf of a pastor living in China. I'm not speaking on behalf of a pastor living in Iraq. I'm not speaking on behalf of a pastor who lived in the 17th century, 18th century. I'm speaking as a pastor, a Christian who lives in Glen Rose, Texas in the 21st century. All right? Three principles that uh, kind of govern my decision-making and guide me in my response to that question, are there instances when grateful subjection to the governing authorities might be sinful? Here's my first response, and please note my wording carefully or I will be open, I will open myself up to terrible misinterpretation. If the government requires me to do something contrary to God's law, I disobey. Right? Did you hear me? If the government requires me to do something contrary to God's law, I disobey. When ordered to stop preaching, Peter declares, we must obey God rather than men. Okay? God ordains government to punish evil and reward good. How should a government determine what is good and evil? The assumption in the text is obvious. It's God's law. A government only determines what should be punished and what should be encouraged on the basis of God's law. That is how morality is defined, God's law. And so God ordains government to punish evil and reward good. How should a government determine what's good and evil? The answer is God's law. If the government requires me to do something contrary to God's law, I'm under no obligation to obey. As a matter of fact, it would be a sin for me to obey. So if I were ever commanded to stop preaching, right, I would disobey. If there was something I was directly commanded, ordered to do or stop doing that was a bring me into direct violation of God's word, I disobey. That's my first governing principle. Second principle is this, slightly different. If the government condones or encourages behavior contrary to God's law, I protest. Now it's different. If the government condones or encourages behavior contrary to God's law, I protest. Good and evil are objective realities defined by God, not by a government or a court. Did you hear that? Good and evil are objective realities defined by God, not by a government or a court. As Christians, we are committed to those objective realities. We believe they are essential to the common good. We believe they are essential to the flourishing of our society. Therefore, when we uphold good and evil as objective realities defined by God, we are actually declaring our love for our neighbor. They'll tell us we're doing the opposite. But in the sight of God, this is what we are doing. We are actually declaring our love for our neighbor when we uphold the objective realities of good and evil as defined in accordance with God's word. And so I seek to commend good behavior to others through my behavior. I seek vocally, verbally to express and commend good behavior to others. Yes, we seek to enact laws that uphold good behavior. And we protest when laws condone or encourage bad behavior. 
you'll often hear it say, well, Christians shouldn't legislate morality. That, thou shalt not murder is the legislation of morality. All legislation is morality. That is a naive statement. Christians shouldn't legislate morality. Every law we have is a legislation of morality. It's just a question of what morality. What we are arguing for as Christians, uh, as, as the nation's conscience, is that that morality is only defined in one place, God's book. It's only defined by one standard. And so when the government actually condones or encourages behavior that is contrary to what is defined so clearly in God's word, we protest as the nation's conscience. The tone of our protest is not screaming. It is not swearing. It is not rock-throwing belligerence. We are people of the cross. And in meekness, we uphold God's law, God's good and perfect will for all people out of love because it is foundational to the flourishing of any human society. Now, that one gets complicated. I should have, did I begin all of this by saying, we're all not going to agree here? That's fine. I'm giving you three principles whereby I think through these things, especially looking ahead. And, and, and three principles that guide my decision-making. This second one is complicated. Let me explain why. Are there specific instances when we, when we think of the government encouraging or condoning bad behavior, are there specific instances that call for civil disobedience? Question, was Rosa Parks right when she boarded that Montgomery bus on December 1st, 1955 and sat in a seat reserved for white people in disobedience to the law? That was an act of civil disobedience. Was she right? I would never want to say she was wrong. Are there specific instances when systemic injustice, oppression, or prejudice requires that Christian love actually express itself in civil disobedience? That's a tough question. I'll refer to John Piper. He says, there might come a moment, a flashpoint, when love will go beyond passive, compliant, non-resistance, and drive the money changers from the temple. Now I need to hedge this. Oh, it's got to be thicker than a hedge. The wall needs to be 12 feet thick. And I don't know how many feet high. I must hedge this. Because when I open that door, it is a small step from here to occupying a wildlife refuge in Oregon. And that is not what I'm talking for about <laughs> or advocating for. I hope we're so clear on that. See, our problem is we want to go down that road. We like it. Why? Our difficulty isn't asserting our rights. Our difficulty is in denying our rights. Our default position is in asserting, 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 fighting for what we perceive to be ours. Therefore, we can be so quick to take a perfectly healthy biblical mandate, position, principle, and abuse it in self-interest. I'm convinced that's why Paul doesn't even lead us down that road here. 
I'm convinced that's, that's, why, that's just not why he's concerned, because he knows the condition of the human heart. He knows we don't need any schooling in that regard. Where we need schooling is in the governance of the human heart and in the mortification of our own pride and the mortification of our own insistence upon personal rights and doing what we want to do. And so very carefully, I answer that question, are there specific instances that might call for civil disobedience? Are there instances when systemic injustice, oppression, or prejudice might require that Christian love express itself in dis civil disobedience? I would have to answer that question in the affirmative. But I would add a huge qualification. It probably isn't in the instance most of us might be thinking of. It would be a very rare occasion. Have we seen it historically? We likely have. Have we seen it sorely abused historically? We certainly have. Here's the third principle. If the first two didn't put you on the edge of your seat, this one will. If the government forsakes its calling to preserve life, thereby becoming an instrument of death, I rebel. All right? Let me, let me go back to the first one and build so that you're clear here. If the government requires me to do something contrary to God's law, I disobey. If the government condones or encourages behavior contrary to God's law, I protest. That's fine. I do so in a Christ-like fashion. If the government forsakes its calling to preserve life, thereby in and of itself becoming an instrument of death, I rebel. Why? At that point, it has become illegitimate in the sight of God and no longer carries a divine sanction. And so, for example, if I had been living in World War II Germany, I would have had no qualms about taking up arms against my own government, all right? That is the big question that arises from this text. That is the best I can do before God in terms of an answer to that question. Three guiding principles that shape my thinking of how I will respond in different situations, different circumstances, different contexts. I have not crossed every T and dotted every I. It's not my intention to. My intention really as your pastor is just to speak to those who perhaps haven't given this some thought and to put before you these three principles as worthy of careful consideration and evaluation in light of the testimony of Scripture as a whole. And where you land might look a little different from me. But I hope I've at least given you some parameters for thinking and wrestling through these things. Let me repeat the three for a third time. My wording, I was careful. I ran it by Allison. She thought it was clear. Here they are again. Number one, if the government requires me to do something contrary to God's law, I disobey. If the government condones or encourages behavior contrary to God's law, I protest and use whatever means I might have available to protest. If the government forsakes its calling to preserve life, thereby becoming the government itself mandating death, implementing death, pursuing a course of death, at that point I rebel. Other than that, I stand upon what Paul says here in Romans 13, that my responsibility, my calling as a Christian, my calling as a man living in light of the mercies of God is to be subject to the governing authorities.
That brings us to his main point of application and where I want to conclude. This is what I really want us to get out of these verses. Again, I want us to get his main point. Uh, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, hear hear what I'm going to say. To understand this, understand Paul's main point. I know. I mean, we we live in such an age, and the the intersect between politics and religion in our day, it's a powder keg, isn't it? But we need to get his main point. To get it, we must see the bigger picture. Here we go. Paul is more concerned about our personal humility than our civil liberty. And so should you be. He is more concerned about our personal humility than our civil liberty. Paul is more concerned about our unmortified sins than our inalienable rights. That's where his concern lays. I, I, lies. I dare say that's where Scripture, the emphasis, the concern of Scripture lies. Far more concerned about our unmortified sins than our inalienable rights. Paul sees human pride as a far greater threat than political injustice. Paul sees the transforming effects of the gospel as far more significant than passing legislation. Paul sees Christ ruling by his word and spirit as far more powerful than any earthly leader, party, or country. Now let me build. Paul's point is not to tell us how to vote in the upcoming election. Not his point. His point isn't to tell us how to take back America. His point isn't to tell us how to defend the Second Amendment. His point isn't to tell us how to affirm our individual rights. Paul's point is to tell us how deeply the gospel should transform us. That's his point. His point is to tell us what kind of people we should look like. His point is to tell us what the new humanity ought to look like. His point is to tell us what it means to worship God in response to his mercies, and in particular, how that applies to human government. So here are your takeaway points. Are you ready for them? Here we go. This is what we should get out of the following. Paying your income tax in April is an act of worship. And being absolutely honest in what you declare in that income tax statement is an act of worship. That's his point. I could build on that one. I won't. Parking in designated areas as opposed to wherever we please is an act of worship. Subjecting ourselves to governing authorities. Adhering to the emissions test for our vehicles is an act of worship. Observing the building codes in our neighborhoods is an act of worship. Honoring, I've wrestled with this one on a very personal, familial level, honoring this country's immigration laws is an act of worship. Making sure we have adequate insurance on our vehicles is an act of worship. 
Buying a hunting license as opposed to poaching on my neighbor's property is an act of worship. Catching only five fish when the license says five fish, the daily limit is five, rather than six or seven, is an act of worship. Stopping at a red light is an act of worship. Renewing our driver's license on time is an act of worship. Obeying a police officer or a court judge is an act of worship. Respecting our local, state, and federal officials is an act of worship. Qualify them all, even when it might not be in our personal interest to do so. That's Paul's point. As Christians, we should be the best husbands. We should be the best wives. We should be the best fathers. We should be the best mothers. We should be the best workers. We should be the best bosses. We should be the best neighbors. We should be the best of friends. And we should be the best citizens this nation has ever seen. Why? In response to the mercies of God, we live as an act of worship, meaning we die to self in the interest of Christ-likeness. That is Paul's message. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our Father in glory above, we do pray for wisdom from above in handling this text, in handling your word in general, but certainly these verses as we have considered them this day. Above all, we pray that our lives might be pleasing in your sight, that we might recognize and embrace our high calling in Christ Jesus to live like him, to live for him. And may this touch and shape every aspect, every component, every area, every corner of our lives so that your kingdom truly comes among us, in us, and through us as your son, the Lord Jesus, rules over us. We ask it in his matchless name. Amen.